me to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 5, and as we've studied through the book of Galatians, we have studied surely the idea that salvation is by faith alone, but in the wisdom of God we see also passages like Austin just read that faith without works is dead faith. And so this morning, as we consider Galatians 5 verses 1 through 6, we want to consider the idea of standing firm in faith. Standing firm in faith, but we do so knowing that faith does not stand firm on its own. Faith is merged together by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit within us to press us onward into good works. So again, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and the title is Standing Firm in Faith. Now, before reading this, let's just set up the book of Galatians. Moving into the fifth chapter, we move into a new section. Paul has labored in chapters 1 and 2 to defend his apostleship and to defend his ministry. He does this not for his own sake, but to set the authority by which he writes such a letter of instruction and admonition to the Galatians. In chapters 3 and 4, he wrote of the main doctrinal purpose of this letter to explain the idea of justification by faith alone. He strove to show that it is foolish to try to add or join works to faith for salvation, to the end of salvation, for works are the result, not the means of salvation. Paul is written to the Galatians as a brother in the faith. He calls them brethren or brothers throughout the letter. He has written to them as their father in the faith, for it is by his preaching of the gospel that these saints came to know Christ. Paul's written to them as a loving and gentle yet firm pastor and shepherd. As we saw in the fourth chapter, he even wrote in a way with the tender care of a mother, telling the Galatians that he was at labor with them. He was laboring in them to make sure that Christ was fully formed in them. Paul has used these various different styles and topics to work toward this one great goal. His one great goal is to see that the Galatians stand firm in the faith, that they understand that they're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. As we saw in chapter 4, Paul's great desire is that Christ would be formed in them, and Christ is formed in those who come to him by faith and faith alone. So that's the first four chapters, and we begin a new section now in the fifth chapter. Paul shifts to writing from, to, a, to a form of exhortation. He is exhorting these believers now to live out their faith by living out the freedom that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we'll see, we'll spend probably about eight weeks in this fifth chapter alone Paul labors to show them that their freedom in Christ is not to the end that they may go pursue the desires of their flesh. They're free in Christ so that they may live unto and in submission to Christ. They're free to love. They're free to obey. They're free to walk in the power of the Spirit. And they're free to lovingly serve their brothers and sisters in the Lord. So that's kind of the setup of where we've been and where we're going. So let's turn our attention now to the text. Let's read God's word. Let's ask his blessing on our time, and then we will 
dive into verses 1 through 6. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. This, friends, is the written, revealed, holy, and pure word of God. Paul writes, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word, and may he write it upon our hearts. Now let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come to you, and we ask you that you would indeed write your word upon our hearts. Lord, would you give us minds and hearts that are able to give our great attention and great devotion now to the truth and the authority of your word. Lord, week after week, in various places across the globe, your people gather together to hear from you. Lord, we gather together to hear from you through the preaching and teaching of your word. We pray and we ask and we hope that, Lord, this is not the mere words of men, but that this is the authoritative word of God that we will hear today. Lord, would you help us to Lay aside the distractions and those things that would, would cause our minds to wander from what has happened this past week or what will happen in the week to come. Lord, may we give our full attention to your truth. Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds. Pray that your spirit would convict our hearts. Pray that your spirit would bring us to a place of brokenness and repentance for the places where we have sinned and broken your law. Lord, I pray that your spirit would sanctify us through, by, and in the truth. Lord, for your word is our only hope in our work of sanctification. Lord, you command us to be holy just as you who have called us are holy. And Lord, you are indeed holy. As your word says, you are holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, what is man that you should look upon him or the son of man that you should care for him? Lord, but not only do you look upon us, not only do you care for us, but you know us. You love us, you guide us, you strengthen us. And I pray, Lord, that in this time you would strengthen us according to your word. God, help us to give the attention that we need to now. God, help us to all be humble 
and eager and ready to receive the truth. Lord, accomplish what you would desire to accomplish by your Spirit. And Lord, for the sake of your glory. Lord, we come to you only through Christ, the Savior who went to the cross, who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we could die to our sin and be made alive in his righteousness. It's only through him that we come. We ask and we pray these things in his name and that he may be glorified in his bride, the church. Prowless for Christ and in him. Amen. So again, as we come to chapter 5, we see Paul's great concern for the believers. We see that his concern is that they would turn or return to the bondage of slavery to sin and the law. Paul then urges them not to return to this yoke of slavery, but indeed to stand firm in faith, to stand firm in the truth that he has labored to impart to them. And as that is his goal for the Galatian believers, so it is for us as well. We must eagerly look to Christ's work and to his righteousness so that we do not rely on any works of our own. We must strive to rely on faith in him that is rooted in love for him so that we find no merit of our own doing to cause us to hope in our own righteousness. Faith working through love is our great goal. Faith that hopes in Christ's imputed righteousness and love that strives to live according to the truth of his words. If we love him, we must obey him. So as we look to this text, as we remember that Paul is beginning a section of exhortation, I want to lay out our outline today as three points of exhortation. Paul exhorts these, re- these Galatians, his readers, to stand firm in the truth. He then exhorts them to resist false religion. Then thirdly, he tells them to do these things because they hope in Christ. So there's three exhortations there. Stand firm, resist false religion, and hope in Christ. So that's what we'll look at today, beginning in verse 1 under the heading of stand firm. Dear friends, we must stand firm in the truth. Paul writes, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, our scriptures are full of transitional verses. When the writers of scripture are changing subjects or changing topics, oftentimes you get a transitional verse that will link the two sections together, and that's what verse 1 is again, linking us to what we've seen in chapter 4 and to where we're going in chapter 5. But my, what a transitional verse this is, friends. It is full of doctrine. It is full of exhortation. It's even full of warning. We could set aside an entire morning really to study verse 1 on its own, but to to keep progress going, we're going to look at it in the context of verses 1 through 6. Paul begins by saying, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was so that we would be freed from the power and the penalty of the law and sin that Christ left his throne. Jesus, the God-man, left glory. He laid aside the privileges of his divinity so that he could be incarnated and come to this world that he created. He came to die on a cross 
so that you and so that I could be free. So naturally, we hear that and we have to ask the question, from what have we been freed and to what are we being freed? We're not freed just to go to go wade off into nowhere or into nothingness. We're freed from something, and we're freed so that we might pursue something. So to what are we freed? I think the answer is very clear in the text. He says that you are therefore to keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. So that breeds another question. Slavery to what? What are we freed from? What slavery are we freed from? Well, of course, in the context of Galatians, the primary point is that we are free from the bondage of the law. We're free from the power and the yoke of the slavery that comes in the law, the Mosaic law and the ceremonies and all the things that came along with it. In Christ, those things are fulfilled, and in Christ, we are free. Again, you notice Paul writes here, he says, do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. We remember that a lot of these Christians here in Galatia, in these churches of Galatia, a lot of them were converted Jews. A lot of them had come out of this Judaism that ultimately was a false religion. They had come to know Christ, and he says, do not run back to that slavery. Do not run back to that bondage. Do not run back to those external laws, those customs, those man-made traditions. Do not submit again to that slavery. It was freedom from this that Christ bought when he fulfilled the law. Freedom from law-keeping, freedom from ceremony, freedom from ongoing sacrifice. You remember what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. The sacrifice is done. The price is paid in full. So when you run back into slavery, when you want to go fulfill the Old Testament law as these Jews and the Judaizers were wanting them to do, you are nullifying what Christ did. You're nullifying what Christ said. If you live under subjection to the law, you're saying that when Christ said it is finished, that he was wrong. Dear friends, it is finished. Jesus died so that we could be freed from that legalistic type of obedience and bondage so that we would be free to live a life of obedience because we love him. So do not be subject to the yoke of slavery to the law. We could stop there and we would get the main idea that Paul is trying to make with that statement, but I think we need to broaden it out. The Galatian churches were not only converted Jews. There were also pagan Gentiles who had come to Christ, pagan Gentiles who were not under the yoke of slavery of the law. They were not law keepers, they were pagans. So to them, it is as though Paul is saying, do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery to sin. Jew and Gentile alike in Christ are free from the power and the penalty of sin. Friends, that is a glorious, glorious truth. All people before coming to Christ were held in the bondage of sin. And Paul says, you are free from that now, dear brothers, dear sisters. You are free from that. Do not return to that bondage. You must stand firm in the freedom that you have been given, the freedom that has been won on your account by the perfect, finished, and glorious work of Christ. So what is the response then? How do we respond to that? How did the Galatians hear that and think, okay, this is how we must respond 
to this truth, this exhortation that Paul has just given. I think that comes back to the second question. We, we see that we've been freed from the yoke of slavery to sin and the law. So what are we free then to? To what have we been set free? We've been set free to live according to the word and the hope that is in Christ. We've been set free so that we might keep standing firm in that freedom. We're to love and value that freedom that we have in Christ. We're to guard the freedom that we have in Christ. We are to enjoy and rejoice in the freedom that we have in Christ. And above all, we are to glorify the Lord in the freedom that we have in Christ. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Our freedom is given to us as we will look in the week ahead so that we might be made holy, that we might forsake sin and live lives set apart unto the Lord. So we're free, ultimately, I think, as the text shows us, we're free so that we may keep standing firm. Now, there's some specific ideas in Scripture that we can see from the writings of Paul as to areas in which we need to stand firm. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins that, that glorious chapter where he's going to recount the, the most concise version of the gospel, I think, that we see in Scripture in verses 3 and 4. He begins that by telling the Corinthians to stand in the gospel. Stand in the gospel that he had proclaimed to them. Keep standing through, in and through the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Consider what Paul would write to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, he told them that they must stand firm in one spirit. He said that this is how you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you as a local church, you stand firm in unity, the unity that's given to you in and through Christ. It's not unity because you all cheer for the same football team or unity because you like the same type of music, or you do the same type of family activities. It's unity because you are one in Christ. Paul says, if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, you stand firm in that unity. Standing in that unity will help you resist the urge to go back to slavery, to sin, or the law. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, he told the Thessalonian church to stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. And these were no man-made traditions, of course, that Paul told them to stand firm and to hold to, but the biblical teaching that Paul had imparted to them. Stand firm and hold to the truth. Now, we'll get a lot of direct and very clear application throughout chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians as to how we must stand firm, how we ought to use our freedom but from these references, we see that we must stand firm in the gospel. We must hold firmly to the core truths of the doctrine of Christ, who he is and what he accomplished and how what he accomplished is our only hope for salvation. We must stand firm in unity as the body of Christ. And we must stand firm in living out the truths of Scripture. So if you want to stand firm in your faith, if you want to stand firm in not running back into a sense of legalism or a sense of licentiousness, so you kind of got the two sides of the coin there, your, your slavery to the law 
or your slavery and bondage to your flesh, if you want to stand firm walking the straight and narrow between those, stand firm in the gospel, stand firm in unity with the local church, the believers, those who truly make up the church, and stand firm on the truth. Speaking of the truth and considering the idea of our freedom in Christ, we can look directly to the words of Jesus. John chapter 8, Jesus, uh, Mike read this earlier in our Bible study time. Jesus is speaking to a group of believing Jews in John 8. And he told them, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. How do we know that we're free in Christ? Because we know the truth. We continue in his word. Jesus went on to tell those those believers, that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Dear friends, that is a promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you are made free, you are no longer a slave to sin, and your life will reflect that. Your life will reflect that you are a slave to righteousness and not a slave to sin. So for the believer, we do not seek freedom to exercise some licentious, fleshly lust and desire. We seek freedom that we might stand firm in Christ and be conformed to his image. We stand firm in the truth so we do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We must stand firm in pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the positive side of the exhortation that Paul gives in this passage, and there's a negative side as well. Verses 2 through 4, we want to consider the idea of resisting false religion. Resisting false religion, and when we say false religion, surely we can have in mind um, Islam and Buddhism and the secular worldview that we've been reading about, or any other kind of just broad, clear false religion. But when we consider the, the idea of false religion in this context, we have to consider the things that are camouflaged as true Christianity, those things that give the appearance of being true religion, true God-fearing biblical religion that are not. So again, resist false religion. Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Now, one thing that jumps out immediately is how personal this exhortation is. Paul begins verse 2 saying, Behold, I, Paul, verse 3 says, And I testify Verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified from law, you have fallen from grace. This is a personal warning from a true shepherd. Friends, that is what true shepherds do. They love the sheep of God. They warn them. They exhort them. They encourage them. That is what Paul is doing here. He is acting as a true under-shepherd of Christ. Now, there's a, a series of statements and descriptions given here. Paul begins by by looking at those who receive circumcision, those who look to circumcision as some kind of external act to make them 
righteous. Now, to be clear, Paul is not condemning the act of circumcision. That is not the point here. Paul is speaking to those who depend on such an act to gain righteousness or to make them righteous. MacArthur offered this clarifying thought on these Judaizers. He said that they taught that what Moses began in the Old Covenant and Christ added to in the New Covenant then had to be finished and perfected by one's own efforts. The centerpiece for those, of course, was circumcision. So they taught that Moses began, Christ added too, but then we must complete. We must bring ourselves, and you could bring any man-made tradition to this, not just circumcision, but anything that you have to add. You have to do this in order to be saved. Obviously, Paul is arguing strongly, strongly against that. So Paul gives some warnings then about those who receive circumcision, those who look to circumcision to make them righteous. He begins by saying that if you receive circumcision in verse 2, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Dear friends, just stop and think about that. Stop and consider those actual words and and plug in whatever man-made tradition you might want to for circumcision. If you receive that thing, Christ is of no benefit. Christ is of no value. Christ adds nothing to you. Dear friend, if you're in Christ, he is everything to you. He has added everything to you. You have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God, and you have no hope in your own righteousness. Paul says, but if you want to add your own righteousness, then Christ is of no benefit. It can be said then that regardless of whatever work we want to consider, whatever man-made work someone wants to add to their faith to be saved, that any human act, any human effort added to Christ stands in the way of your salvation. Anything that you think you bring to the table in your salvation is the very thing that stands in your way of being saved. You say, I read my Bible for two hours every day, and because of that, I am saved. Because of that, I am righteous before God. It's that very Bible reading that makes you condemned, because it's that very Bible reading then that causes you to not have faith alone in Christ. Now, I would recommend if you have two hours in the morning, please do spend it reading the Bible. Spend it in prayer and in communion with the Lord, but know that that does not make you righteous in the sight of God. What makes you righteous before God is because he sees the beauty, the glory, and the holiness of his son when he looks upon you. Your sins are washed clean in the blood of Christ. Though your sins are as scarlet, you are whiter than snow because you have Christ's righteousness credited to your account. Paul gives in a a second warning. In verse 3, he says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. If you receive circumcision, you are under obligation to keep the entire law. If you want to bring any moral work to your salvation, you must keep every jot and 
every tittle of the law to be righteous. Again, you know, Jesus talked about the righteousness of the Pharisees, that if you want to hope in your own righteousness, it must exceed that of the Pharisees. They were the the most righteous externally men of their day. They were considered to be those who walked in, in righteousness and holiness before God. And Jesus said, you look at them, if you want to want to use and be credited with your own righteousness, it must exceed that of the Pharisees. If you want to use any of the law, you must keep all of the law. To be under obligation speaks of owing something to another. If you receive circumcision as a hope of righteousness, as an act of righteousness, you owe a debt then to the law. You are a debtor to the law if you hope in something external to make you righteous. Now, we have to remember the original purpose of circumcision. If we were to go back to Genesis, and we won't do this, we did it um, back in chapter 3 or chapter 4 of Galatians, to consider the life of Abraham. Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then many years later, the Lord brought circumcision as a sign of his covenant with Abraham. That's all it was. It was a sign of the covenant. It did nothing to make Abraham righteous. So to the Galatians, Paul says, if, if you receive circumcision, you must keep the whole law because you are desiring to be under the law. Now, those warnings are, are pretty stark. They're, they're pretty severe, especially this idea that Christ will be of no benefit to you. But the warning gets even more severe as we move into verse 4. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And really, these phrases are, are similar in a way. One is an active verb, one is a passive verb, but they kind of help press forward the same idea. To, to be severed from Christ speaks of being reduced to inactivity. We have been reduced to this place of, of abolishing the saving work of Christ because we desire to add ourselves to that work. To have fallen from grace speaks of falling down or falling away from a specific place. So it's like you have this person who is close to salvation. They're close to coming to Christ, but that final step, rather than being whole submission to Christ, they get all the way there and then they say, well, I got baptized, or I've got it written in my Bible, or I do this, or I do that, or I'm a part of this church. And to do that, Paul says, then you have fallen from grace. You have fallen down from that position of being close to Christ. To be severed from Christ is that passive verb. It talks about the Lord cutting you off from the work of Christ because he sees that you are not coming to Christ in faith alone, and so you are cut off. You are passive in being severed from Christ. But to have fallen from grace is an active verb. That is what you do. You are close to being in Christ, and you fall off of that glorious mountaintop. You have fallen from that position of grace because you want to rely on your own works. 
Now, both of these, quite frankly, should be equally and eternally terrifying to those of us who know God's Word, to know what hangs in the balance between faith in Christ alone and true salvation or a lot of faith in Christ and a little hope in your own doing and eternal condemnation. Friends, that should be terrifying to you. It should be terrifying to me. It should cause us to fall to our knees every day and beg the Lord to renew our faith in Him. Your faith remains not because of what you do, but because God keeps you. He guards you. He protects you. No one can pluck you from His hand. He will hold you fast. So as you consider what waits on the flip side of you adding works to salvation, dear friend, tremble before God and ask Him to keep you in that most holy place of coming to Christ in faith alone. So ultimately, the charge of Paul here to the Galatians and to us is to resist this deceitful, despicable, godless form of false religion whereby someone depends on their own merit to be made righteous. There is condemnation and there's obligation in law-keeping. There's a bondage that cannot be broken. There's a penalty that cannot be paid if you want to count and trust in your own righteousness. There's no salvation in this, but only condemnation, only bondage. So we've seen these two exhortations, kind of either side of the coin, to stand firm in the truth and to resist false religion, to resist the religion that's being perpetuated by these Judaizers to encourage the Galatians to bring themselves under the law so that they may be fully in Christ. There's air quotes around being fully in Christ because that is not life in Christ. So thirdly, then, let's look at the undergirding exhortation to both of these things. Verses 5 and 6, the, the call and the command to hope in Christ. Verse 5, Paul says, For we, through, or, or by, we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but rather it's only faith working through love. Friends, those who stand firm in the truth and resist false religion are those described in verses 5 and 6, those who are in and by the Spirit, who are in faith, who are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Who is the hope of righteousness? Of course, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, God-made man who fulfilled every law necessary to be made, be called righteous. He was holy. He was sinless. He was perfect. You are unholy. You are sinful. You are not perfect. You, as one who wants to stand firm in the truth, must hope in Christ. You must await the hope of righteousness. That's a term that really should probably be translated eagerly awaiting. It is that eager and expectant hope that is to come, that is to be revealed. For we do not know fully what it means to be in the righteousness of Christ. We know enough to be saved by it because God's word reveals what we need for salvation. 
But there is a glorious day coming when Christ will return or when we will be called home to our eternal home in heaven where we will experience the fullness of righteousness. Friends, we should eagerly await that day. We should long for that day. We should desire to put off this body of sin and put on an incorruptible body of holy righteousness. So how do we fight fight against these false religions? We fight them by eagerly looking for the consummation of our faith, the, the completion, the perfection of our faith. For what sense would it make to hope in Christ's righteousness, friends, but then to live a life opposed to that righteousness? What hope would it make to know that Christ's righteousness is your only hope, but to go live as a rebel against God's word? 1 John 3 says that everyone who has hope fixed on Christ will thus purify himself just as Jesus is pure. If you hope in the righteousness of Christ, you evidence that hope by walking in purity, by pursuing purity, by seeking to put off the defilements of sin and the flesh and to live a life that is set apart, holy unto the Lord. So those who are in the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6 then continues, For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Faith working through love. What is faith working through love? What does it practically look like? It it is a faith in Christ that results in a transformed heart. It is faith in Christ that yields changed desires. It is faith in Christ that yields those things because it is empowered by love for Christ. While we walk and we wait in the hope described in verse 5, that hope in Christ, we must rely on faith in Christ that is driven by love for Christ. We can see this in Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians, if you want to turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We have studied this, um, now I guess several years ago, we went through First and Second Thessalonians in our Bible study time. There, Paul is writing a letter of commendation, really, to these Thessalonians. This was a healthy, biblical church. Paul begins in First Thessalonians 1, verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind, watch this, your work of faith, and labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. You see that, the work of faith, the labor of love, that is, and that's what drives the steadfast hope that is in Christ. So what does that labor of love look like, you might ask? I hope you didn't turn away from that. Read down to verse 5 in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full 
conviction. Do not come in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. What is faith that works through love? It is a life that is lived and guided and oriented by full conviction in the Word of God. It is life lived in that full conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit. Faith working through love is a life-transforming conviction under the authority of Holy Scripture. MacArthur wrote of this, that life in the Spirit is not static and inactive. But, he says, it is faith working through love, not the flesh working through self-effort. That is life in the Spirit. It is dynamic. It is active. It is empowered by the Spirit, not by your own self-will, but by the Spirit of God working in you. This is what it means to hope in Christ. We live in the Spirit. We walk by faith, and we walk in love. And walking, living in the Spirit, walking by faith and in love, then reveals itself by our conformed living to the life and the person of Jesus Christ. If you are standing firm in the faith, you are being made more and more like Jesus each and every day. So let's tie this all together as we move towards concluding this morning. Paul tells his readers to to stand firm in what is revealed in God's word. To stand firm in the truth that the law only brings condemnation. Your only hope for salvation is in and through faith in Christ. To stand firm, we must understand the dangers of false religions and false gospels. To stand firm in faith, we must understand what works-based salvation really looks like. We must understand that even a small dependence upon our works for our justification, and that is the the delineator that we must have, the, the separating point, depending on your works for justification, even the smallest dependence completely severs and separates you from Christ. Genuine saving faith is activated and sustained by love for Christ. Genuine saving faith is activated and sustained by love for Christ. If we love him, we will obey him. If we love him, his commandments will not be burdensome. As we read earlier, the reason we selected that passage in James chapter 2 is the reminder that faith without works is a dead faith because if we love him, we will want to obey him. There will be those good works that accompany our faith. Not that build up our faith, not that come alongside our faith, but are the outworkings of our faith. So may we stand firm in our faith. May we resist the yoke of slavery. May we resist the yoke of slavery to sin or slavery to the laws. As I look across the room, I don't know that there are any former Jews in the room, so I tend towards the second application there rather than the first, that we must stand firm in resisting the slavery that we once knew to sin. Now, standing firm 
in resisting false religion, friends, we must look to our glorious Savior. We must look to Christ. We must eagerly await the day that he calls us to himself when we will experience in fullness what it means to be righteous. And as we await that day, friends, let us strive, as Peter commands, let us strive to be holy as him who called us is holy. Eagerly wait for that day. Eagerly look for the return of Christ or the day when he calls you home. But as you eagerly wait for that, purify yourself just as he is pure. Don't don't count on that purity to save you, but allow that purity to be your sacrifice of worship to the Lord. Walk by the Spirit so you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit so that you will honor the Lord and live a life pleasing and acceptable and glorifying to him. Let's close in a word of prayer.